Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Boiled Over. Our guest this week is animator, game designer, and experience creator, Jenna Caravello. I first saw Jenna's work as character animations in the documentary, and was shortly thereafter introduced to the rest of her work, which immediately blew me out of the water. I was then fortunate enough to get where she discussed all the different mediums she works in for storytelling and her wide array of influences. I'm so excited to get to share this interview with you all, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did getting to speak with Jenna. Without further ado, I'm Lige Morgan, and this is... Hi, Jenna. Thank you so much for taking the time again to speak with me today um, and be on the podcast, but was just wondering to get started here, uh, if you would mind introducing yourself and talking a little bit about the work you make. Yeah, it's so nice to be here. Um, my name is Jenna Caravello, and I make short films and interactive installations that use animation and video game platforms to explore um, love and death. <laughs> I can sum it up. I'm I'm an animator <laughs> and a compulsive, anxious baker, and my favorite color is blue. <laughs> Perfect. I think those are like the three facts that you should know about everyone, probably. Yeah. Or anyone, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I guess to get started here, uh, could you talk a little bit about how you first got started in animation and why you stuck with it? Yeah. Yeah. So I was an oil painter my entire life and um i always hated that uh paintings didn't kind of require a captive audience <laughs> which i think is part of like a shared anguish right for artists that are making art that isn't interactive or time-based but also i really admire that in artists who can be kind of humble and generous about that that's that's like the generosity of of painters and sculptors that you can walk by their work and not be kind of stuck in a theater or <laughs> have the expectation that you need to engage with something in order to make it go. Um, but I didn't want to be so generous. <laughs> and um, yeah, how did I, I get into it? I, I was deeply in love with animation, um, specifically through my interest in video games. And, um, and then also because of music videos. So uh, my hobby when I was like a little middle school weirdo was to uh, sit by my radio and make storyboards for every song that came on K-Rock one after another. So like Alice in Chains and, <laughs> and oh, Tool. Oh, I love that. Do you still have the storyboards? Oh, no, no. But oh, that's there so were... sad. <laughs> I really, I wish I could find them, but um yeah, there were little like binders on binders of just system of a down music videos. <laughs> what I'd give, what I'd give yeah. to see this. Mm -hmm. I think what kind of hooked me on animation um, is is a lot of the um, concepty um, stuff around what it's like to animate something inanimate. Right? I think I think that what interests me. Uh, the most about animation and video games too is that animating is literally like raising the dead <laughs> completely <laughs> and I can be very I can be very deathy so I'm sure this is gonna come up again right 
Um, but uh, I really like the feeling that animation is literally a trick, right? It's taking something dead or inanimate and giving it life. And so I think a lot about how agency in video games is um, like necromancy. <laughs> and these are these are addictive ideas to me, I think. So that that's kind of how I stuck with animation was was how deeply linked my feelings about life and, and death and power and agency are, are connected with the actual kind of laborious act of animating. I think that that's so particularly cool because a lot of people in discussing animation talk about giving life to something, but it's mm -hmm. never about really like bringing something to life or I guess like back to life that it was ever alive in the first place. Um, and I, I love this idea of kind of like raising the dead because um, it, at least for me, makes me feel like the the movement was already there, was there once upon a time, and you're just kind of infusing it back into this object. Um, yeah. But I think that's super cool. Um, one of the things, I mean, and you've been talking about this, but that interests me most about your work is uh, like the understanding and use of video game logic. Um, and whether that be a 2D short or a 3D interactive experience, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your interest in video games um, and maybe like the first game you ever played, what made you fall in love with them in the first place, um, some stuff like that. Ooh, yeah. Um, okay, so it's hard to pinpoint the first game that I ever Of course. <laughs> um... Maybe the first like, really <laughs> fundamental game that you played. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... I think specifically of two, right? There's um, Tomb Raider 2 from 1997, which has Laura Croft kind of between her, her missions where she's killing guys and, and getting killed herself. She goes back to her mansion and she can run circles around her mansion freely. And for me, as a little girl, uh, playing those mansion levels between the kind of deathy um, killing stages that my dad would play so so dad would play would like shoot guys and then we'd get back to the mansion and you could run circles around and you'd have this little butler kind of following you around and having a female main character who I could play as um and not having any kind of threat and having just a an open world to run around in and explore was um so so big for me when when I was a kid and and so I played I played those mansion levels. Um, it was just one level that you'd return to. Um, and yeah, it, it really stuck with me. It, it's kind of the the spiritual successor of of every single thing that I have done since is are these like Laura Croft moments, right? And um, and then the other thing that comes to mind is uh, my sister and I used to play Monkey Island on a PC that my dad had built. Wow. And yeah, that's how I learned how to read. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I would drive my sister crazy asking her to to kind of read out words and she's very patient. Um, but yeah, I, I remember um, playing point and click adventure games and, and learning to read through, through playing those. And yeah, I, I do think that the idea of exploration and um, the idea that have, having agency in a space and having a, a playable kind of open world, um, an explorable open world, 
has always been really, really big for me. And, and I try to encapsulate that in filmmaking as well, which um, had always been a struggle. So I was making short animated films before I was making anything interactive. And in the same way that moving from painting to animation was about kind of finding a captive audience, um, moving from animation into gaming or, or interactivity really was about trying to engage this feeling of um, spaces, specifically liminal spaces, like gray, gray area spaces where mm. there's nothing that directly needs your attention right now, but you can spend time in a space. Like um, the Lara Croft mansion. Like the Laura Croft mansion, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I find that stuff so interesting, you know, even if it's a point and click adventure game, even if it's not kind of a free roamer. So um, I played a lot of adventure games like King's Quest and Space Quest. Shout out to Sierra and um, Roberta Williams, who's like my hero. Um, and Monkey's, Monkey Island uh, kept kept going, right? of course. <laughs> Um, and then I get, I get asked really often, um, kind of what my favorite game is. And so I have an answer to that and it's, it's a little jokey, but I kind of mean it. There's, <laughs> there's a game called Hot Toeful Boyfriend. Oh, um, love it. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and, I, I just got it on my Vita, actually. You have it on you have first of all, you've got a Vita. Of course. <laughs> okay. For for the uninitiated, um, this is a a game that is in the format of um an Otome game, so like a dating simulator where you are given a character that you're supposed to embody, and then you're given a whole cast of characters who you have to decide. Um, through the story of the game, and it's very much like a visual novel, um, which one you want to pursue as your, you know, your boyfriend. <laughs> um, in most cases, these dating sims, uh, your your dating choices are like hot people, right? Um, but in this one, all of your dating choices are pigeons, photos of pigeons. <laughs> And I, I really don't want to spoil too much, but I I just really admire this game for um, just being a, a poster child for taking the language of, of gaming and using it to its utmost advantage, um, just turning everything on its head and, and um, it ends up being quite a quite a drama. It's well, wonderful. it's like I, I know that there are so many, like there's countless dating sims out there but how many does like the the average person really know about right like like this one is like so incredible and like I, like everything about it from its idea to like the actual style to having like photos of pigeons in a weird anime visual like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's it's perfect it's just perfect mm -hmm. um wow i'm so excited to play now i <laughs> Um, Saki and LaBelle Shirogane, best pigeon. <laughs> okay, duly noted. Um, yeah, but I, I guess maybe my my more realistic answer is um, The Grim Fandango. I, it's a masterpiece. Um, LucasArts adventure game. Um, it's, it's, it's literally, it's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful game.
It's a noir story, but it takes place in, um, I want to say hell, but it's not hell. It's more like purgatory. So it takes the idea of like different levels of, of life after death and um, everyone is kind of trapped by by their past and you play as this character who's a grim reaper but he's one of many grim reapers they're kind of like um sales agents who try to to sell you on different ideas of like how to go through the underworld and pass on to the next kind of level of the underworld and and you're just kind of a shyster and and then you get in some hot water and you fall in love it's it's just a like an unbelievable extremely beautiful project it's it's just amazing yeah i i have to revisit because you're definitely unlocking some <laughs> some ancient memories right now um so i'm curious like in making games and animations um what kind of programs and tools do you use to create your work okay so for 2d animation i use photoshop i i make all of my films in the Photoshop timeline, which I, is insane. I think you were like the third or fourth person in a row on this podcast to say <laughs> that. Um, and my, myself included. I only animate in Photoshop. Are we saying I think Are we just we all I think we all have to be. We're all animators not using an animation program. So do you use um any of the plugins for the timeline? I do. I'll use the uh, Animdescent plugin, um, mm -hmm. but I actually didn't have that for Frontier Wisdom. Um, I just did it straightforward. So um, I know it's masochism wow. and TVP is, is great, but uh, it's not Photoshop. Photoshop. <laughs> it's not. I need my brushes, man. I, <laughs> don't take my brushes. I need those. <laughs> and yeah, I, I like it. I, I like Photoshop. And, and um, then I go into After Effects and, and I, you know, organize everything in After Effects. And when I'm doing 3D, I use, really go back and forth between Maya and Blender and Cinema 4D. And I do a really? lot of texturing and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, wh why one 3D application over another for any specific reason? Yeah, it... it um, it comes from, I think, just I have favorite things to do in each program, things that I like better in each program, just by way of how the GUI is laid out. So I prefer modeling in Maya. Um, I prefer sculpting and UV unwrapping in Blender. Um, I prefer rigging in Cinema 4D. Okay. And, mm -hmm, I actually prefer animating Blender. And yeah, so so I go back and forth. I I really do. I go back and forth. And if I have to make a um an export, I'll usually export frames out of Cinema 4D. I just I like the Cinema 4D huh. uh engine kind of better than And Eevee which or... which rendering engine do you use in Cinema? I'll use Redshift. Okay. Sometimes. Sometimes. Not not always. I, I'm trying to make the shift to Redshift right now from Octane. Um, yeah. And Octane is just for babies. Like, I love it. I can just click a few buttons and stuff looks great. But yeah. Don't knock it. Don't ever <laughs> knock it. Anything anything that gives you, you know, 
advantage. Oh, I with- love things for babies. It's like, <laughs> it's my favorite yeah. ever. Like, I don't know why everything isn't made for babies. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually why I, I started 3D in Maya. And then I didn't touch 3D for another, I think, three or four years because it was so anti-baby. Um, yeah. And then I did Blender a little bit. And then I found Cinema 4D and I was like, this is for babies. <laughs> Um, and no, that's not to say that like any of these programs are easy and like Cinema 4D is not easy, but like it works a lot better with with my brain and the layout and um, the UI and everything I think makes more sense to me. But it's cool to hear that you use all three applications because I do find myself switching back and forth from Blender and Cinema 4D pretty frequently. Um, Blender often for game stuff uh, like UV unwrapping, like you said, Cinema, I mostly use for modeling because I love the volume builder and mesher, um, which isn't really like elsewhere. Um, but yeah, no, I, I can't stand Maya. So all the power to you for using <laughs> using that one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and so you do all your modeling in Maya. Mm-hmm. Shout out to, to Joe cool. White who taught me how to model in Maya. And so mm-hmm. is that all like hard surface modeling? Um, I, I, yes, um, I actually start all of my models from a cube. I'm, I'm that's like so cool. Okay. <laughs> dedicated to cube modeling. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you wouldn't guess that looking at your work. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm really particular about some things. I, I want clean edge loops. Um, and Starting with a sculpted object, I, I just remeshing won't give you those nice kind of edge loops that I love. And I have I have so many thoughts. It's it's funny we're talking about this too because I talk about this a lot with students that I have at UCLA, and um, uh, there's a lot of guilt around um, using tools that make things easy for you. And I think there's a really kind of hard line between using a tool that lets you do your work right using a tool that makes things easy so that you're not killing yourself over your work just for the sake of saying that you you know spent three days on this instead of just four hours um but then at the same time there are some tools some some plugins some software and then also a lot of kind of downloadable stuff um that uh, it kind of dips into plagiarism or or dips into um, making your work look more generic because you're leaning on these tools that, that again, make things easy for you. So that hard line, you come up against it, you find that line, and um, it might mean something different for you. I, I just think that um, you've got to be careful about making sure that your work is yours and that if you're, if you're, investing your time in making something, make it, you know, be, be the artist who made your work. Um, but don't kill yourself. Don't sit there and, and model. It's, it's hard to say. So like if, if there are a hundred freeware models for a Mac desktop, like on turbo squid, you don't really have to remodel that. You don't have to sit there and kill yourself and spend two days and model like a, a Mac desktop for the background of your project um but change it a little bit i mean you remesh it like change the change the textures make it yours you know 
Um, but if we're talking about base meshes for characters, um, I think that you should make your own base mesh for a character. Otherwise, your work will start looking like generic kind of downloaded humans. And that inherently is problematic, right? Like what's a generic human? I st start hearing for this sure. in a lot of people who are new to CG. They'll say like, oh, I'll just use like a default human. Like, uh-oh, what's a default human? Right. <laughs> like, whoops. <laughs> um, and then, and then also we all have our, our own style. Um, so you want to be able to allow that to come through in, in your models. And, and if you start from base meshes that you've downloaded online, or if you start from things that uh, maybe were plugins, a lot of your work starts kind of um, looking like the next person's work, which starts looking like the next person's work. So these are these are the hard lines that you you kind of run up against that I think are really important to think about when you're first starting with with CG. But don't kill yourself. Don't don't make it don't make it don't don't be a masochist, please. I I totally agree, and I think that it it extends out of CG too. I mean, like it's just like all of art, um, and it's the issue of using tools versus using other people's work in your in your own creation. Um, and it is like a fine line and it's also kind of a blurry line at the same time, which is weird. Um, but yeah, there, there is this whole weird, like mystique, I guess, around spending so much time on a project just so that you can feel like it's yours, um, which is like this weird, maybe like capitalist thing that's been imposed on us where like you have to spend a bunch of time on something to make it feel valuable rather than it being valuable because you just created it in the first place um and i'll talk with people about like programs that can help you like color your animations for example or stuff like this and they're like yeah but then my hand isn't in it and you know it's like it's the same thing as downloading, uh, you know, a stock MacBook for the background of your scene. Like you could spend 10 hours modeling this thing that's going to be out of focus in the back of your 3D render, or you could just download a free model and change it slightly and make your life so much easier and focus on the parts of the animation that are actually important then, um, like your subject, your character, your story, your narrative, um, all of that stuff. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's all really really good food for thought moving on a little bit uh i know you mentioned your film uh frontier wisdom and i would love to talk a little bit about that some more um just because i think it's such a perfect example of the way video game logic and aesthetics kind of play into your work um could you talk a teeny bit about your process for creating that film yeah um it it came from a place of of um deep kind of homesickness. I had left Chicago and I was moving back to LA where I was born and raised. And um, I happened to make this move uh, with my dad who, um, you know, came in a big truck to pick me up in Chicago. And then we, we drove together to um, Los Angeles and then he drove off. And um, it made me think a lot about kind of the middle spaces. I, I really was gonna miss the Midwest. And um, the way that kind of spending that time with my dad, who's a wonderful guy and also kind of a mysterious guy, like I could never wrap my head around 
what he's thinking or, or what he did for work, I'd, I'd ask him, he worked for a telephone company, he worked for PacBell. Mm. And I'd be like, so what, what would you do every day? And he'd be like, oh, I work for PacBell. You know, I'd go to, I'd go to the studios, I'd hook, hook things up. Like, what does that mean? I don't, <laughs> don't understand. So yeah, this like mysterious father character that I have and, and this, this move all kind of was making me think a lot about, um, in, in video games, you've, you've got like fetch quests <laughs> and I was this kind of fetch quest mission, <laughs> um, to, to bring, bring the girl from very, very like last of us, right. Bring the girl from Chicago to, right. to Los Angeles. Um, and so, um, with that in mind, I guess, like I structured frontier wisdom, kind of like a fetch quest. So, um, you enter a situation, you meet an NPC, you get an item, you, which is money in this case. And then, um, you bring an item back and, and then the whole world or the plot changes, but it doesn't really, because you kind of need to keep playing. You need to keep on with your life. So it's very cyclical. And the main character was inspired a lot by, by my dad and his job working for, for phones. And then the landscape was very much inspired by these kind of, uh, middle spaces these like liminal spaces between uh chicago and and los angeles and um it was very much about kind of meeting myself as a corpse in the desert and kind of um becoming the corpse in the end as um as we all do yeah the and i guess so you asked you asked also how um video games inspired the structure of of the film besides it being mapped kind of to a fetch quest structure um i play a lot with uh first person and third person perspective in my films and in my games too and um mostly because i think there's this important precedence or like a language in video games that um has been developed around embodiment and what it means to either be in the body or be witness to the body while still having agency in either case and um, kind of what your relationship to the landscape is in, in either case. And I wanted to, I don't, I don't know if this just sounds so pretentious, but I think so much about this stuff is I wanted to signify kind of a, a change from first person where where you're embodying this character and this character is me and this character is also my dad um you switch from the first person embodiment to the third person uh experience where now the landscape is kind of equally as important as as the character is so the difference from going going like i know uh 007 uh what what was the n64 game from going go, going goldeneye to to um i know red dead too <laughs> <laughs> where the landscape is is important you know it's a character no yeah. i don't i don't think that sounds pretentious at all i mean like that's that's <laughs> the whole thing right like it's it's so cool that you shift perspective throughout it but the shifting perspective actually acts as a narrative device for the story mm -hmm. as well i can't believe the only First person game that came to mind was 007 Golden <laughs> What it was like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Whoops. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. There hasn't been another first person game since. 
Yeah, they're really a. <laughs> don't don't worry about it. <laughs> no, 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 for on. sure, for sure. <laughs> I feel like in working in both the arts world and the world of video games, um, they're two pretty different spheres, at least like a lot of the time. And I feel like video games aren't really taken seriously in the art world sometimes, which kind of drives me crazy. Um, and I don't know, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on the relationship between video games and the art world, because I feel like personally, at least, they've become one of the most accessible forms of education and storytelling. And like, we have these amazing experiences that are also, I would argue, pieces of art um you know just for like a couple dollars uh in your pocket and so yeah. i'm definitely curious how you feel about the relationship between these two worlds and where you fit into both of them i think it's it's such a mixed bag and there's kind of this this stigma right there's there's this kind of uh narrative about games and particularly about vr that the goal is somehow always uh immersion and um and telling like a, a clean perfect story um which is kind of like saying that the goal of filmmaking is to tell like the hero's journey <laughs> and to make you cry at the end that's the goal of film just there you go that's you know it. it's, it's no more <laughs> limiting. and it's so unrealistic too right um and we are moving away from that as as a people <laughs> and it's um indie game developers who are using the uh, the culture and the tools that are now becoming more and more available and using the language of games and the expectations of games and flipping those expectations and then putting their games out for free on like itch.io who are quickly changing how we use the platforms and see the platforms. And by platforms, I mean, I mean both the kind of online spaces where games are are shared and traded and, and talked about but also the tools themselves um because in the same way that you know a camera is a very interesting tool that has limitations um unity which is a video game making software is a platform that has its limitations and a vr headset is an interesting broken platform that has its limitations right and um once we start building theories about about our tools and um, having kind of deeper thoughts about how um, we're critical about culture through using these tools, how we're critical about visualizing things through these tools, how we're critical about uh, interactivity and, and engaging with each other through these tools, then we start getting art, right? So um, all of the subversive um, indie games that are being made and shared for free um, are doing most of that legwork. So that's where I would put kind of all of the credit is is on the, the indie game developers sitting in their bedrooms right now saying, hey, I speak the language of video games and I want to make a boyfriend, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, not all of them get that same kind of traction, but then they uh, play games with with the logic of, of video games in, in a way that's interesting and then we get artists who who engage with that stuff um who engage with both triple a game company stuff and and the culture of of games people like angela washko or um who's who's amazing 
Um, and then also like Kim Lawton, uh, Lou Young, Theo Triantafilidis, who, who are putting out, you know, big game art pieces in, in museums and, and touring around. And um, they're also gamers. They're, they're playing these indie games and they're, they're bringing that language and they're using these tools and they're critical of these tools and bringing that into a gallery space. So um, I think that, that games in the art space um, will play with the platform and the language of games and the culture of games. Um, and that these are all critical of the platform while using the platform, right? So I love when these lines start blurring. Um, this is all to say <laughs> that I think we're actually in a really good place right now where, where um, once we start becoming critical of our tools and we don't have these boring expectations of games as being, um, games are fun, games are immersive, this kind of Silicon Valley idea of what VR can be, right? You're gonna be there. You're you're in the space. Like you'll forget about your life. You don't forget about your life. You don't forget that you have to pick up your kids at three or that you're hungry or you know these these things that we can play with as part of the 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 material stuff of of these tools. Um, it's very human. So I I think that we're in a good space, and it's because of the tools becoming more accessible. I totally agree with all of this. And I'm definitely interested in talking a little bit more about VR, um, specifically with um, Apple's new VR headset coming out. And I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, but yeah, I was wondering, you know, with it becoming more and more accessible, not necessarily for the $3,500 price tag Apple's putting on it, um, I think it is going to become much more of a standard platform for storytelling. Um, and I was kind of wondering where you think the technology's headed, if you think it is getting more accessible, hopefully. Um, yeah, just kind of what your thoughts are on all of this. I've got, I've got some some big opinions and, and I'll just say um, that really the worst thing that can happen to any platform that people are using to make art with is when it becomes too proprietary, when it becomes too expensive, um, when it's not accessible, um, but then also when it becomes really limiting in scope, like too limiting in scope, um, where uh, tools and software are kind of holding your hand and you can't hack it and you can't build plugins for it. So I see in our current state of, of VR, I see things going one of two ways um, that the uh, that the hardware becomes too inaccessible because of price or because it's too proprietary and only works with its own kind of bespoke software and only works with its own bespoke platforms. It's constantly asking you to sign in and you can't share headsets and you can't leave a headset at a gallery space and you can't, you know, bring one over to your friend's basement and show people what you made um, because companies are trying really hard to make money and, and also to be known as, you know, the one headset that does X, Y, and Z, um, as opposed to the other headset, which does A, B, and C. Um, and they're, they're trying to differentiate, differentiate each other. Um, 
and they're not trying to um, make things easier, easy for collaborators or, or for um, creators. So, so one of two ways, right, is, is things can, can become tighter and tighter and tighter. And we, we can't use these tools to make art because they're just too limiting. Uh, or innovation keeps spinning its wheels and people keep hacking and adjusting and um, new commercial options have viable maker spaces and that's kind of how the history of vr has been so that's what i'm hoping for i i do think that the future of devices is ar <laughs> i i think that we're all gonna really want to know people's credit score and social status overlaid on our on our little like glasses you know i think google glass was like far ahead of its time but that's what everyone's gonna want um is like oh now i have to i have to pull out my phone to be able to like see how many followers you have like oh my god oh i have to pull out my phone now to to email you like <laughs> and that's the final frontier <laughs> like being being one with your your screens um I wanted to talk about Canto 9 a little bit um, and just a few more questions here. So we're wrapping up, but it's such a beautiful project. And yeah, was just hoping that you could talk a little bit about this project and share some of your process for anyone listening who might not be familiar. Yeah. Um, so I was starting to get pretty frustrated with how long um, animated films and, and also uh, kind of fully developed VR projects and, and things were taking me, you know, the, It'd be like four, four years I'd be working on a project. So I wanted to make something that um, reflected how I felt um, in these kind of interactive installation in this, in this interactive installation format. And um, so during the pandemic, I started kind of thinking a lot about Dante's Purgatorio. <laughs> And, and Inferno and um, mostly just because like COVID was hell <laughs> it was so lonely I was I was just kind of sitting in my Echo Park apartment all alone and and um, I remembered you know I'd been obsessed also with with angels and um, thinking about religion for for a really long time I'm I'm not religious in fact I'm I'm like a I'm like an atheist Jew but I love Christian symbology for some reason. And so Canto 9, the, the ninth canto is, is the part of uh, Dante's poem in Inferno where we first encounter an angel. It's, it's kind of the first angel. And uh, the angel has to come down and let Dante and Virgil into the next kind of layer of, of, um, of hell. And he's all he's all pissed about it. He, he like appears and he's all sassy and he's just not into being there, but he's got to do this thing. And then later in Purgatorio and, and Paradiso, we, we hear that, you know, angel, angels are these like unbelievable light beings that are terrible and beautiful and horrible to look at. And, but also that they're these avatars for God, these, these like windows into God's light, you know, God is staring at you directly through these people. So it's, or through these these angels right mm -hmm. and so 
um, I thought it was very funny that the very first angel was kind of like pissy. So <laughs> just the idea of kind of a vision of God as being like pissy God. Um, and I was thinking a lot about angels as being avatars for God as, as being an interesting kind of proxy for, for uh, being the agent that animates a playable character. And so um, Canto 9 is a three channel installation, which means that there are three different computers kind of running this at the same time um, and three different displays. So um, on one screen is a proxy for kind of how it felt to communicate only online with people and, and communicate only through text uh, for about a year and a half of my life. And um, I, I made this kind of angel character who you, you can't really control, but instead you can type to him and um, his physics are a lot kind of like one of those windsock puppets that if you say nice things to him, he will kind of gain solidity and rigidity. And if you say mean things to him, if you type mean things to him, he'll kind of lose his form. But if you alternate back and forth, you can kind of horribly tangle him up in himself in this, in this way. And um, the way he's looking at you, at the viewer, it's a lot like looking into a mirror so um, just this very simple kind of interaction that I wanted to embody just in, in an installation, right? And um, I call these interactive animations. And I, I started really thinking about um, these kind of isolated interactions that make for an animated experience um, where you have some agency and the NPC has some agency and um, it's time-based. So. Anyway, investigating that. And then also I was doing some online gaming. So the second channel of Canto 9 is um, you have, you can play as this character that's um, magnetized to another character and you play as both characters kind of fighting with yourself, but it's, it's really kind of, they look like these two angel uh, buff man uh, action figures just kind of smashing against each other. It's really like homoerotic <laughs> and and like really weird. And um, the other thing that you can do is you can change the camera angle. So you can see them either really, really close up or you can see them really, really far away where they're kind of just two little spots on a table, <laughs> like wrestling each other. And I was thinking a lot just about like video gaming and, and porn and like a lack of connection and, and just like that's that's what that piece embodies and then the last one is um you have direct agency over this kind of wiggly ragdoll character that you can control running around an apartment and um it also kind of gets terribly tangled into the walls and and like smooshed into the walls so if you play any one of these for long enough, they they kind of break themselves. And um, we're just thinking a lot about making games that that are broken at the end of playing with them, kind of like playing too hard with a toy. Because when people mm. approach video games or, or something that's interactive in a gallery space, they're always trying to push it to its limit. They're always trying to see like, how, how can I break this thing? Where are the ends of this world? And it's quite easy to find the the ends of of this of each channel of canto nine so, i feel like that's also extremely fitting with with the narrative and the theme of the piece too though right like 
being stuck inside for a year and a half dealing with all this stuff and just feeling so broken at the end <laughs> and feeling so easy to break yeah like, not so hard. <laughs> you just fall apart you just can't handle it oh exactly <laughs> um talking about uh kind of like prepping for this episode you mentioned a project that you were working on called love like um and would love to hear a little bit about that before wrapping up here so I'm I'm really excited about this project. Um, it is a, a live performance project that uses motion capture um, to translate my movements uh, into an avatar who um, is visible directly behind me. So a projection is kind of showing an avatar that is that has my same movements, and this avatar is in a virtual space and. Um, I am collaborating with um, an amazing composer named Celia Hollander, who is making um, music using Ableton um, at the same time that I am interacting with virtual objects in the virtual space that one-to-one -one are kind of mapped to effects and um, tracks in her Ableton project. So. The goal is really to have kind of a tool or a switchboard that I can use to actually collaborate live on a musical, on an improvised musical performance instead of um, the alternative, which I think is a lot more common where, where uh, MIDI or OSC is kind of directly influencing like light effects in, in touch designer or, or in Unity. And I'm, I'm excited. Um, it plays kind of like a video game for me. So from beginning to end, it has a lot of symbology about um, the internal and the external. Um, I play as different avatars that I find um, represent my, my feelings about a lot of um, kind of internalized pain and, and uh, anxiety and then how I externalize that as a different avatar. Um, involves kind of moving objects around a room. So thinking a lot about a representation of, of like the internal conflict versus the external resolution, um, that's about as much story as there is in it. But it mattered a lot to me that I'm not, I'm not like dancing. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an actor. I'm not a dancer. I like dancing, but. Um, I was gonna ask if there was any choreography no yeah okay. if if any it's just that you know maybe at some point in this scene i should make sure that you know the chair is on the left side of, of the right room. um it's, that was my other question was you mentioned that there are the going to be these objects that you're interacting with in the virtual space are they going to be in the physical space as well or at least have proxies in the physical space for you to interact with or how does that work? So what I didn't mention is that I'm actually wearing a VR headset. So um, got this, it. Okay. <laughs> it's it's confusing. I, I always mention it last because um, it's important that the audience like understands that like they're not going to be seeing uh, my perspective of the right. Movie. They're going to be seeing my avatar. Um, and that's just kind of an external display that's in the unity project that's looking at me, but um, I'll be able to see those virtual objects because my I'll be wearing a headset. Right. 
But oh, that's so cool. Oh, wow. I can't wait to hopefully see this. Um, what are your, what are your plans for this? If you have any right now? We have plans to show like version one at uh, 2220 Arts, uh, a space in Los Angeles on uh, August 18th. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then I think finishing up here, we just have one last question, which is uh, kind of the standard boilerplate final question here. Um, if you had to give one piece of advice to anyone looking to get started with animation, game design, or anything in between, um, what would that be? I think the first thing that comes to mind, I, I hope it's not too generic, but I think it's just <laughs> is um, that makers make. So artists art. Um, if you sit around beating yourself up that you're not good enough or that you haven't figured out, you know, what where you want to be in 20 years or, or what you want your art to look like in, in two years from now, like you have to you have to escape that. And if you want to make games, you, you have to sit down and start making. That's that's really what I would say is, is it's so easy to get kind of trapped in your mind and in your anxieties about not being uh, good enough or educated enough in, in a software. All it takes is really, really, if you wanna do it, to sit down and start with what you can already do and and make makers make artists art and as soon as you're making you can call yourself a maker and as soon as you're arting you can call yourself an artist and as soon as you're animating you can call yourself an animator you know you know like there's no limit on that it's it's just that no one's handing out labels yeah you've got you just gotta do don't beat yourself up i think i think artists art is a beautiful ending note <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for taking the time again, Jenna. Like, this has been such a joy getting to speak and meet you. Um, but yeah, thank I'm, you. I'm so glad that we got to talk and this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. In the next episode, we'll explore the incredible painterly worlds and characters of Veronica Mariana. Veronica and I had such a lovely chat that I can't wait to share with you. So I hope to see you next time on Boiled Over.